You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And on today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Michael Kruger. Dr. Kruger is the president and professor uh, at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's received many degrees, more degrees than a thermometer, highly accomplished individual. He's written many books. The books include Canon Revisited and The Question of the Canon. In addition to many academic accomplishments, he serves as a pastor in the Presbyterian Church in America. He's married to Melissa, who's a popular author and women's minister and friend of Jen Wilkins. Dr. Kruger is a widely respected scholar, and we just asked him the simple question, can we trust the Bible? We hope you enjoy the discussion. All right, well, today we're joined by Dr. Michael Kruger. Uh, Dr. Kruger, we're so glad to have you with us today. Thanks. Great to be with you all. So where are you calling in from, Dr. Kruger? I'm in my office in the RTS campus of Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay, and uh, your your role there is uh, is what? what? What do you do for RTS, and how long have you been with them? So I've been with RTS for 17 years, and uh, I've got multiple hats I wear here. Uh, in addition to being a New Testament professor, I'm also now the president of the Charlotte campus, so I'm busy doing lots of different sorts of things, um, both academic and also broader leadership roles. So it's it's been a joy. I love being here. One thing I just want to say real quickly, Dr. Kruger, being at the Village and, and doing some work kind of in theological education, just immensely grateful for all that RTS is doing right now. There's so many professors, not only at your campus, but at others that we have had a chance to interact with. We just want to always uh, kind of uh, commend people towards RTS. We're grateful for the work. Scott Swain has been really oh, yeah. influential in my own kind of theological journey, or Mike Allen, Lig Duncan. We're going to have... Uh, Carl and Karen Ellis out here in a few uh, about next year to come do some stuff. So thank you for your work. Your institution is valuable for the life of the church. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Those are some great names you mentioned, and we're thankful to see all the different stuff happening. And that really God's doing at RTS. So um, appreciate that. It's exciting. And uh, Jen, you you have some connection to the Kruger household. Yes, I do. I love his wife so much. <laughs> I mean, you're great that too. Makes two of us. You're great too, Doctor Kruger. <laughs> And I always remember... You wouldn't believe how much I hear that. (laughs) Well, I always remember the first time I met you, you you introduced yourself as Melissa Kruger's husband to the whole room. That's right. That's my new title now, actually. They're going to put that in my bio. (laughs) That's excellent. Well, Dr. Kruger, you have written uh, many books. Um, You've been doing this work for a long time. um, And you have... It seems that you've had a focus in your writing on questions of the canon. So what are some of the books that you've written on that topic, just so the audience is aware? We'll plug those books on the beginning and end too, but I'd love for you to just share a little bit about what, what got you interested in the question of the canon and uh, what books have you written on it? Yeah, well, my own interest in canon sort of started uh, many years ago, even before I was a faculty member or even a scholar, even as an undergraduate at, at UNC. I, I was confronted with this by a professor there uh, Bart Ehrman, actually, who many will know that name, who I had a New Testament introduction class with with Dr. Ehrman, and he brought up a number of different things about where the Bible came from, particularly the New Testament, why these books, not others, are they forgeries, and who wrote them, and why why should we believe these are better than the apocryphal books we have? And those kinds of questions, when I was 19 years old, I didn't have an answer to, but I wanted to have answers to them, so I started doing my own research on that and became fascinated with it. And then that just started me on a trajectory that took me to seminary, 
uh, and then eventually to PhD work, and then, of course, now many years in the academic world. So my, my, my work in Canon spans uh, a number of different books and studies and so forth. But that's, that's the origins of, of what, how I got interested in it. Okay. So Wait, I have to just bring okay. in here. Yeah. Uh, you, your blog name is probably my favorite one on the Internet. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of wordplay. Would you just please let us know, what is the title of your blog, Dr. Kruger? Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. <laughs> Cannon Fodder is yes. the name of my blog. Uh, yes. We can all laugh now. Um, what's funny about that title is, you know, people who aren't familiar with the issue of the Canon usually, you know, associate with the boom Canon, C-A-N-N-O-N rather than C-A-N-O-N. And every time I tell my blog title name, I have to explain the pun. But then I tell people, if I have to explain the pun, it's not funny it's not anymore. Funny. So, you know, you it's true. No. It's true. But, I'm there. Right, but, I'm right there um, with yeah. you. Well, so it's... Um, but, it's, yeah. So it seems like every year, Dr. Kruger, around Easter... History Channel or something else like that debuts a new documentary, and there's a new lost gospel. And everything that we've ever believed about Jesus in the Bible is wrong. Even within the history of the church, <laughs> debate has raged about which books are in, which books are out. And so it may seem like an abstract discussion about counting books, but the conversation really seems to circle around one crucial question. And I think this one will launch us into some other questions that we want to ask you. Can we trust our Bibles? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the real question at the end of the day, isn't it? I mean, uh, and uh, the people who write these articles at Easter and Christmas and different things about why our books aren't the right ones, they know that the fundamental end game of that is it's going to make people doubt whether they can trust their Bibles. One of the things I've been encouraged in the, 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 my own research is that we really can. Um, and I would encourage your listeners just to be reassured of that. I, I tell people all the time, look, just because you don't have answers to the questions you're, you're reading about doesn't mean there's not answers. And mm. I always want to remind people not to confuse the two things. Uh, us personally not having an answer doesn't mean there's not an answer out there. And for the average person in the pew, they're like, well, I don't know what to think about the Gospel of Thomas. Why is that better or worse than what we have? And I just want to say that when you start digging into the evidence, actually the evidence is overwhelming that, that the books that we have in our Bibles, particularly in in my area, the New Testament, are, it, it makes perfect sense why these are the ones that God intended for us, and all the evidence points in that direction. Uh, so I've, I've been, been regularly encouraged by what I see in the, in the, in the unfolding of this in early Christianity, that, that, that all arrows were pointing in the same direction from a very early time. Yeah, one of the things that I think is interesting in these conversations is that sometimes these articles, whether it's or or, or like uh, you know documentaries on TV, is they seem to suggest that these this is like a new question. Like the church never faced the questions of canon, or never, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden now we're kind of coming to this realization of, hey, where did these books come from? Who mm -hmm. made this decision? Uh, but the reality is the church has been dealing with this question ever since these texts were written. Uh, so a question I have for you that I'd, I'd love uh, to hear your answer for, and keeping keeping it relatively simple is. How So I, I teach theology uh, sometimes adjunctively and inevitably, regardless of what I try to make the topic about, when we're talking about uh, kind of the topic of revelation or bibliology, the doctrine of scripture, the question students want answered is, how did we get our Bibles? Like, like what process was followed in order to get these 66 books, if there was any process at all? Yeah, well, the process has got, uh, it's a long story. It, the process, of course, started in the first century when the books were written and one might say that they were con the process was sort of wrapped up, at least in a general sense, in about the fourth century when there was a final consensus on all 27 books. So it spans several centuries, the, the historical process. Um, people hear that and they think, oh, no, you mean it took that long? Um, and if it took that long, then I must not be able to trust it. And I want to 
I always reassure people, look, you, you, you should expect that there's going to take some time to get these things worked out and figured out. That's, these things don't happen overnight. Moreover, I also remind people that there was a, a core collection of New Testament books that were agreed upon at a very early time. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly by the early 2nd century, it's clear that the church was, was pretty much unified around about 22 of the 27 books of the New Testament without much dialogue or discussion. And that's actually uh, an amazing thing for most people. They don't realize that. They don't realize that when it comes to the New Testament, there was never any discussion or vote or disagreement about the vast majority of the books. They were just in place and, and well-received almost from the start. And that should give people some assurance that the process actually it, it, you know, points in the direction of the reliability that we have the right books uh, in our New Testament when all the dust settles. And if I wanted to go just find the original Bible, where would I go for that? Is it in a museum somewhere, <laughs> uh, Dr. Kruger? So like, if only. Uh, is, it like, is, it lo- is it locked away in Area 51 or Smithsonian or is it in the Holy Land? Where, where are those original 27? Where are they at? How did we get them? They're in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant? That's right. <laughs> we all know where that is. Right. Um, yeah, well, I mean, this is uh, one of the things that makes the study of the canon interesting is that, you know, we, we, we can see it unfold in different manuscripts over time. So there's no one book somewhere that was the original New Testament because these books are written at different times by different authors in different places. So it was something that was assembled, obviously, at a later point. Now, we have copies of the New Testament that are fairly early. I mean, one of our earliest complete copies is Codex Sinaiticus in about the 4th century, which is a, a complete copy of the New Testament and also Old Testament writings that is... Um, you can just see them all laid out right there. But prior to that, they, a lot of these books circulated in smaller groups. So the four Gospels would circulate in a group, Paul's letters would circulate in a group, the general epistles would circulate in a group, and so on. Um, and it, you know, it wasn't until later that they sort of were bound together in one book. But I tell people, don't let that fool you. Just because they weren't all bound together in one book that you can go into a museum and look at doesn't mean they weren't conceptually linked in people's minds and in, 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 in the way they think about which books were authoritative. When we look at the early patristic sources, they, they clearly could tell us which books they deemed to be scripture and which they didn't. And that's that's part of the way we track the process over time. So uh, that's that's really helpful. One question that, that uh, always comes up in the classes uh, is, so the term canon, we haven't really defined it yet. It basically means like standard or rule or, uh, and sometimes students think that there was an external standard or rule by which uh, the church was evaluating the, uh, the whether these texts should be included or not. And in some sense, that's true. I mean, we're talking about who was the author of these texts, what were the texts talking about, what's the overall theological me- message. But but would you say that there was an external standard that they were judging the texts by, or is the text itself the standard? Does that make sense? Yeah, well, you, you're getting into into the fundamental question of my my sort of first main book on canon called Canon Revisited, which is this question of, of how we know which books are in and which books are out. What is the what is the method or the the framework we're using for that? Um, and there's all kinds of different sort of models of canonicity out there in terms of how you know which books are right and which books are wrong. Some people look to an external standard. I mean, a, a good example is just the Roman Catholic ap- approach, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to know which books are in the Bible, you look to the church to make an authoritative declaration about which which books are in the Bible. Um, that's not the historical Protestant view or the Reformed view. Um, we we would believe that the books themselves give us indication of how they're authenticated. Mm-hmm. Um, and this raises a whole larger discussion about self-authentication and the way that works. But generally what I tell people is is that 
when, when, when you want to know how you know which books are in the, in the New Testament, the New Testament actually provides an answer to that, and that is the, the role of the apostles. Mm-hmm. Um, the apostolic authority that Christ infused into the apostles was the fundamental basis for why we take the writings as authoritative when they're passed down to us from apostles. Um, and how do we know that? Well, from the writings themselves. Now, that, that in some people's minds seems fallaciously circular. It really is not, because there's no higher authority than the books themselves. And so if you want to authenticate them, you've got to at least start there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I make that fuller case in my book, Can It Revisited? And that's, I would actually like for you to chat a bit about self-authentication, because I think there's some uh, misconceptions about what that is, if people even know what it is. So when we think about self-authentication, we're trying to think through, uh, not only the text is authoritative because of its author. In addition to that, only its author is capable of witnessing to the authority of the text. When we think about self-authentication, help us understand the work of the Spirit in bearing witness to the Church, what these texts actually are. Yeah, well, one of the things I I argue in my book, and of course, I'm not the first to do this, I'm just picking up on the the threads of of what people in Church history have long argued. Uh, Scholars and theologians have long argued that that you can know a book's from God from the book itself. Mm -hmm. In other words, the that the books from God have certain characteristics or, or attributes or marks uh, of divinity, if you will. Um, and this is what I call in my book divine qualities. Mm. Um, now, uh, there's a number of different things that fall into this heading, the, the sort of the power of these books, the efficacy of these books, their unity and their harmony, their beauty and excellency, and so on, uh, the way they agree and cohere together, and there's a lot we could talk about with that. But people always object and say, well, hold on a second. If those, those qualities were really there then why don't more people see the Bible as the Word of God? If those qualities are really there, then wouldn't everybody in the world sort of just immediately, intuitively know that this is God's handiwork? Right. Um, but of course, my response to that is, well, you, you can only see what's there if you have eyes to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's, a, if it's a spiritual issue, you're going to need spiritual eyes to see it. And we know that sin has very much tainted the ability to, 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 to rightly recognize things from God. So I, my analogy is it's like being tone deaf. Um, you can't hear when something's on key or not. And and you've got to have your, 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 your broken ears, your tone deaf ears, spiritually speaking, of course, in this analogy, fixed so you can hear the voice of Christ in the, in the scriptures. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold.
The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your your copy today. My favorite uh, uh, author when it, when it comes to self-authentication is Calvin. I think Calvin thinks about this really well. If any of our listeners are interested, he, he talks about in his institutes where he says that God alone is the fit witness to himself and his word. And so he's trying to say that scripture will be authenticated insofar as the internal witness of the spirit is showing us that these books are indeed the very word of God. But an interesting question that always comes up is, are we thinking about, is self-authentication an individual act? In other words, uh, is, is the scripture, or is the spirit just doing it in my life or is he doing it in the life of the church or both? Yeah, I think historically it's been both. In fact, um, most people, when they think about self-authentication and the work of the spirit to help them see which books are from God, unfortunately, they overly individualize it. They think that, that somehow it's this sort of individualistic private revelation, when that's not at all what the, the doctrines historically meant. Right. Yes, individuals conceive that these marks by the help of the Spirit, but it's really the corporate church that God is using the Spirit to, to convince. And so at that point, we can look to the corporate people of God and see how the church responds and reacts to God's Word as a, as a, as a guide to which books contain uh, his true writings. And, um, and if the Spirit is at work in the church and God uses the Spirit to authenticate his books, then that is, that's an important connection to make. So there's a real ecclesiological dimension to canon then. Uh, it, it's very much connected to the church, but not in the Roman Catholic sense. It's not that the church creates or makes the canon. The way to think of it is that the church reacts, the church responds to um, canon. It, it, it's, it's an inevitable response because of the work of the Spirit. Man, that's good. I am withholding a personal rant about personal revelation right now, but we'll save that for another podcast. Um, I, you've, you've obviously thought about it. No, no oh, please don't encourage me. Um, self-restraint is such a rare quality for me to exhibit. Just let me sit in it for a minute. Um, the, I'm just curious. You've talked about this for years, and I would imagine that um, over that time frame, um, common misconceptions have emerged both among unbelievers and believers with regard to the canon. And I'd just be curious to hear, what do you perceive to be the biggest misconception about the canon among those outside of the community of faith and then among those within it? Oh, yeah. Well, actually, they're the same things. That's what's Uh sort of sad about it. Um, (laughs) and, And maybe, yeah, exactly. And maybe part of the reason why this issue is so important. Yeah. Um, wow, there's so many misconceptions. One of, one of the biggest misconceptions out there is that the canon is the result of a formal vote or church decision at some point. So Wait, they didn't do the, that at the, the narrative would go Exactly. The, 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 the narrative would go something like this. Early Christians wrote a bunch of books. Everybody had their own books. No one knew what to read. No one agreed on what to read. Everybody was using everything. And then it was much later probably 4th or 5th century, that Christians got together, probably at the Council of Nicaea, um, and they officially voted under the pressure of Constantine as the emperor, trying to influence them uh, to, to finally make a Bible. 
so, and it's that Bible that you read today. That's the general misconception. So we have noted theologian Dan Brown to thank for this? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have Dan Brown to thank for popularizing yeah. it. But, of course, Dan Brown is just regurgitating what Christians and non-Christians have misunderstood about the canon for years. And what I tell people is that, look, you know, the canon actually was in place with no vote. Now, you think, think of the four Gospels. that No one voted on those. No one chose those. If you, if you walked up to a Christian in, say, the second century and said, why did you pick Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? They would look at you like you didn't make any sense. You'd be like, what do you mean pick? We didn't pick them. They were, they were the ones that were always there. They were handed down to us. It's like asking somebody, why'd you pick your parents? Mm-hmm. You don't, that's, a, that's a nonsensical question. That's the way the canon would have unfolded, and I think that's a big misconception for people. That's so helpful. Um, one of the things that we get uh, all the time is, there. Uh, hey, um, I was reading through the Gospel of Mark, and at the end of Mark, in my Bible, there are these brackets. Um, why are there brackets around that part of Mark? Uh, and you know, and they're not asking from a place of doubt or disbelief. They're just most of the time the question just starts off as curious. So, can you explain that? Should we read and teach that passage as if it's authoritative? I and mean, what's going on with the brackets in the Bible saying, "Hey, earliest manuscripts don't contain this"? So, you wanted this to be a brief interview, did you? Well, that is definitely not going to happen now. We've totally changed the discussion. I will um, clear my you calendar didn't have to, to hear this in the answer. long ending of Mark. Exactly. Well, uh, yes, well, you just raised a, an entirely uh, distinctive issue, a really important one, though, which is we've been talking about the question of which books so far, which is the canon question, and, and you raise, a, raise another very important question, which is the question of which text, right? So even if everyone says Mark belongs in the Bible, now the second question is which Mark? Um, and what they mean by that is, wait a second, some of our manuscripts have a different ending in Mark. So when you read Mark 16 and you come to 9 through 12, uh, or sorry, uh, 9 through 21 there at the end, um, you, you realize there's brackets around it that say, hey, uh, some of our earliest manuscripts don't have these verses, um, and therefore they're in doubt. Now, this is one of those times when the average church member kind of has that flutter in their chest, and you can feel they get nervous, and you know, what does it mean I can't trust my Bibles? I encourage pastors and others at this point to take the time, take that opportunity to explain the way the Bible was transmitted so that people aren't flustered by these things. And the quick version is that we have very good reason to trust our text. Yes, we do have scribal changes that happen in it, like any book in the ancient world. That's, that's not unusual. That's just the way it works. But we can spot those changes when they happen, and we can easily recover um, what we think the original text said. And if so, then we don't have to worry about whether we have it. Those brackets are there to show that some of those manuscripts did contain that long ending, but some of our earliest ones didn't, but it's not a reason to doubt it. So as far as whether to teach it or not, the question is whether you think the original author wrote that. And if the original author didn't write it, then obviously we wouldn't, wouldn't teach it or preach it. I think on this, uh, I had a seminary professor helpfully kind of walk me through this question once, and he, and, and you already brought up uh, the scholar and uh, a New Testament scholar, Bart Ehrman, but there's, of course, many others who are kind of following, following his uh, theological tree, so to speak. It's just the importance of honesty. Like, as evangelical Christians, when it comes to Scripture, we don't have anything to hide. Uh, we, we believe that this is God's Word. We believe that God is authenticated in His Word, that we can trust the Scriptures. And so when we're dishonest about, for example, the ending of Mark, or maybe John chapter, the end of John 7 and beginning of John 8, it appears 
like we do have something to hide. Like we're afraid that this actually might not be the word of God. So I appreciate your emphasis here on just saying, this is the evidence we have. This is what we know about the Bible. Because I think that actually, I think our honesty gives people a sense of, of security and say, okay, we're, there's, we don't have any skeletons in the closet related to canon. This is how we receive the text. This yeah. is what we should teach. Yeah, there's, there's certainly an issue of honesty there, and, and no doubt Christians need to be honest. I also think there's an issue there of, of, of confusion from, from pastors of what people can handle it, or what they, yes. what they can take. And what I tell people is like, look, eventually they're going to hear about this. So do you want them to hear about it from you or do you want them to hear about it from, from Bart Ehrman? Exactly. In other words, do you want to take the opportunity you have to, to explain where the Bible came from, at least at some level deeper than they know, so they're inoculated to some extent against some of the stuff they're going to hear. Otherwise, you're going to have some panicked people on your hands. They're just going to read a magazine article and come back and go, whoa, I never heard that before. Well, I want them to never really say, I've never heard that before. I want them to say, oh, I've heard about that. My pastor told me about that. Um, and, and, and there's answers to those things. So let me ask you just kind of a, this is more of a selfish question, I have to admit. But uh, Colossians 4.16, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So let's just imagine that we were to dig up a copy of Paul's letter to Laodicea should it be included in the New Testament? <laughs> Kyle, canon? you're the worst. I mean, listen, I've got him. I've got him. I've got him on the phone. It's not Love like it. I have his cell phone number. I can't like text him these questions, you know, at 10 p.m. Yeah. I got to like recruit him to come to a podcast to hang out with Jen and JT <laughs> and then be like, also, by the way, I have this big question. Um, <laughs> in 30 seconds or less, answer the top three most difficult questions. Yeah, yeah. Canon, yes. Um, Canon Well, I mean, you've raised another there. zinger here. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I cover this a little bit in my book, Canon Revisited, but it's a very hard question. And I and honestly, I go back and forth in my own head about it. Um, in Canon Revisited, I argue that, that Canon, by definition, is, a, is, is the books that laid the foundation for the, for the collective church. And any, any, any a lost epistle of Paul clearly did not do that. Um, it doesn't mean that it didn't enjoy a level of authority in the individual congregation that received it, but it never formed the foundation for the church as a whole. And so I argue that even if we found it, I, I, I wouldn't see it as something that we would add back in, so to speak. Uh, but, that, you know, it's not an easy answer. I mean, there's, it's not an easy question. That answer isn't necessarily the only way to look at it. There's, there's, it's, it's difficult to know how we would respond to a lost epistle of Paul as found today. I think there would be um, issues of authenticating it and how that would happen. Um, I, I, my personal sense is that'll never happen because I think providentially God did not see fit to preserve it, but it's you know certainly in the realm of possibility. So, um, so I think it, it could go either way, and I hear d- different scholars have different opinions on it. So, okay, let's get pastoral really quickly here. Let's say that you are um, in church on a Sunday and a member of your congregation comes to you and they are completely freaked out because they just saw the latest thing that dropped on the History Channel or they've just taken an intro to New Testament at, at, at a local you know, state university um, and, and they're in a tailspin. Where do you point them first? Yeah, yeah well, I get that a lot actually um, from people who in, at a church level who are really in a panic about things. Um, and I, I, I give them some, some quick little tidbits of advice. First of all, I say, look, you know, scholars have looked at these things for generations. This is not new. Mm-hmm. Um, don't think that you've been told something that we've never heard before. Mm-hmm. Um, Christians have heard these questions and answered them. Secondly, don't think for a moment that you, you have to personally have the answer to this to, to believe. It, imagine if that were the standard. 
I have to have every single possible question answered before I can have a, a credible profession of faith. No, that's ridiculous. Yeah, that's good. You can believe in Jesus and believe in the Word of God. That's true, even if there's questions you don't have answers to. Um, and so to tell them, look, you don't have to have answers to everything to continue on in the Christian life. Uh, and then I say, thirdly, look, in, in, in even if you don't know the answer, you should know that there are answers to these things. And then I would direct them to some quick, quick resources, you know. Um, I would point them to my website because there's some things I put up there that, that do uh, help at a lay level uh, answer some of these things. There's some good books out there that do it. I can tell them, look, it's, it's, you've you got to spend some time diving in. Mm-hmm. Don't think you're going to sort of resolve all this in, in, in 24 hours. So this is part of the Christian life. You've got to say there's things I don't get, but I'm going to slowly work through them. Be patient, but not let that derail my faith. That's good. I want to come to your church and hear you say yeah, that to me. <laughs> Anytime, you're welcome. Uh, come by, I'll be happy I to do that. I mainly just want yeah, to hang out with Melissa. A lot. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. I know the real reason. I'm not <laughs> fooled. Dr. Kruger, we're so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're such a blessing. I just want to highly encourage if uh, if this is something uh, that a listener, that if you've listened to this, you think, man, I really need to go get a next step here, either as a digital resource or something like a book, a little bit longer exploration of the topic, then I would encourage you to check out uh, Dr. Kruger's website. You can, if you Google Canon Fodder, Canon, C-A-N-O-N, Fodder, uh, Kruger, then you find his website. Uh, or, it is the number one recommendation I get to people on this topic. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it is, it is, there's so much on that website that's so helpful. And so the book. Please, please, yes, the and book. And Canon Revisited yeah. is an incredibly, it's, it's, I give that book out often on this topic to our students. And so Dr. Kruger, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, guys. Fun time. Hopefully we can chat again. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, we are going to be answering your questions. It's a Q&A episode. Uh, and so if you have not yet submitted a question, you can do that by going to the Village Church Twitter and finding the Slido link for the Knowing Faith Q&A podcast and submitting your question there. We look forward to it. See you next time. Grace and peace.